great to be here, great to be sharing this morning, and um, I'm looking forward to it. This is part three in a, in a money series, and for anyone who doesn't know me, I feel like I know most of you, but some of you might have just kind of seen me around. My name is Daniel, my parents are Wayne and Julie Hollard, the lead pastors of our community here, and uh, I'm married to Gracia and Laura's wanting to come on stage this morning. She's got her bright yellow jacket so everyone can see her. And uh, she's our little little gem. And uh, yeah, Gracia and myself, we love to be in the prayer room in this community. We lead the Friday morning, so you just had the announcements. Uh, we're in there Friday 9 till 12. Uh, we're also in there Wednesday nights. Gracia leads worship. Um, Nathan, who was singing, is my brother. Um, and, and he and Lauren, again, they're serving all over the place in this community because we love this community. We love what prayer is doing in our city and in our region. We love seeing families reach and transform. And so it's a real kind of privilege and uh, blessing to be a Hollet and to to be here sharing this morning. Um, So we're continuing the money series. And for me, I have always been kind of fascinated by money and finance. Um, You know, I think someone got me into shares when I was about 14 and I very quickly kind of flipped from reading comics in the paper, you know, that little comic section, for anyone who remembers what a paper is, um, there's a comic section and there was a real estate section. And I flipped from the comic section to the real estate section somewhere in that kind of bracket because I was, you know, fascinated by houses and property and ways to make money from them and things like that. And uh, kind of ended up becoming a financial advisor and spent nine years in uh, providing personal financial advice. And now I am a headhunter or a recruitment consultant. Uh, working with kind of large organizations who are trying to find specific people with niche skills to add into their business unit or team. Um, Here at the school, I also serve as treasurer. I've been working with the school for almost a decade now, which is pretty wild, Um, and I'm currently the treasurer, which means, uh, by and large, it's my job to make sure that we have a budget, that our budget works this year, and that it works on like a three- to five-year time span, so things like buildings, um, making sure we have the money, I don't design them, though I get to sit in on the meetings, Uh, it's my job to make sure we have the money to pay for the buildings, so if the buildings keep going up, I'm doing a good job, if the building stays as it is, I'll be gone somewhere, I'll be hiding, Um, so you know, so I have been fascinated by finances, and and how that translates is when I read the Bible, I get really uh, energised, interested in, excited by passages about money. Passages about wealth, not because I'm necessarily chasing those things, though it might be a hangover of my family used to have none, so I kind of want to make sure I'm reading those passages to make sure I get some at some point. Um, But it's just the way I'm wired. It's the way God made me to love things to do with business and finance and and money and trade and all these kind of ideas. And um, so this morning I want to talk about finances from like a big picture, big picture kind of view and it might be unusual you might kind of end up doing the little head on tilt moment of like what is he saying you know but let's pray let's ask that God would give us a spirit of wisdom and revelation this morning that we would understand what's in his word but needs a little bit of digging into and a little bit of uncovering to understand so Father, this morning, it's my prayer that you would give us, our whole community, a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of you. That we would understand finances from your perspective. That we would understand money matters from your perspective. 
that we would see rightly and live rightly in this age and in this time. Not absorbed by the spirit of the age, but having the wisdom that causes us to number our days rightly, to number our finances rightly, that we would live with wholehearted love for you. Amen. All right, so Wayne has been sharing the last couple of weeks, and he had six main points. So by way of quick recap, we talked about grace, participation, percentage, consistency, humility, and reward. Those were the six we were talking about. And I'm going to hone in mostly on reward, but a couple of the others as well. Now, when we become Christians, we often pray a prayer or make a statement that says something like, God, I give you my life. I put my life into your hands, I declare that I am yours, and then we spend the rest of our lives kind of figuring out what that means, and figuring out how to give God greater and greater influence over all the areas of our lives. As we grow, as we develop, as we enter into new phases and new seasons of life, it is a continual journey of unlearning and relearning God's ways. That, in essence, is what discipleship is And a lot of the time we can end up in situations we didn't necessarily want to be in. It's part of life. And with a little bit of panic, we sit there and we go, who in heaven did I just give my life to? What on earth is going on here? Are you good? You said you were good. But who are you? I need to know you. And we sit there and we wonder, are we friends? Are we enemies? Are you doing good things with my life? Are you doing bad things with my life? Can I really trust you? And actually, that questioning is not by any means a bad thing. If you're in a questioning place today, please ask the questions. I love asking the questions because I have found in my own life again and again, it's the answers to the questions that give me the strength to trust and obey over and over. And I am yet to find a question God does not have an answer for. I am yet to find a flaw in his character. I am yet to find an area where he cannot be trusted. He has proven himself again and again from Genesis to Revelation. He proves himself again and again. And in my life, and you can ask my parents and you can ask many in this community, he proves himself again and again as being faithful. So ask the questions. And today, I want to ask questions about finances, both ours and God's. And I want to ask, what do God's finances actually look like? How much has he got in his wallet? Does he pay by cash or card or shekel? What does he do with his money? So I want you to turn around to the people next to you, two or three, whatever it is, whoever's around you, and ask each other, what kind of finances does God have? What does he do with them? And stay in your little huddle, because the next question I want you to discuss is what is the will of God for your life when it comes to finances? Is it A, to be poverty-stricken? B, to be above the poverty line, but not by much. C, to have exactly enough. D, a bit more than enough. E, to be rich. Or F, to be mind-blowingly wealthy. Continue your discussions. (laughs) Now, for the purposes of this morning, I don't mind what your answers are to those questions. But there'll be a lot of things I could tell about how you see God and how you live based on your answers to those questions. And it's really important that we develop a right understanding of what God has and what he wants for us because what he's asking us to do right now 
is going to, and our willingness to obey is going to depend on what we think about where this thing is going. I mean, if we were to fully give Jesus the pin code to our bank accounts, the online password for our accounts, and to say, Jesus, take control. I mean, are we about to go broke for the rest of our lives? <laughs> if we let Jesus take the wheel, is he going to drive us off a cliff? Where are we going? Where is he going to take us? If we say, Jesus, I give you my life, you're in control. Where am I going to end up? I've got good news this morning. God is not driving you off a cliff. No matter what you feel like in this moment, there's never been a moment where he didn't know where he was going. There's never been a moment where his GPS was broken. There's never been a moment where he wasn't confident in his ability to get you there. In fact, he started sharing with us as early as Genesis 3 about what the end would look like. Because he wanted you to know the answer. He wanted you to know who he was. What he's about. Where he's going to take humanity. How committed he is to humanity. And I don't have time to give a full unpacking of all that Jesus wants to do, of all that he wants to bring us to. But as it pertains to Jesus' goal, his end game, I'm going to summarize as follows, is the kingdom of God on earth. And as a general rule, a kingdom pertains to the land and people governed by the king unto the prosperity and well-being of its subjects. So then in simple terms... There's a real place, there's going to be real people, and there's going to be a real king named Jesus who governs not for his own good. We've already seen in his life, he pours it out again and again. So he's not going to govern so that he has more, so that his part is the biggest part. He's going to be a king who gives it all away who governs for the well-being and prosperity of you and I, that we would truly be the community of God, the kingdom of priests, the saints. Okay, Jesus, if it's that good, you can take the wheel. I like the sound of this, a king who cares about my prosperity. But Dan, can you show me what it looks like? Can you tell me what it's going to look like when Jesus reigns on the earth? What is this prosperity that he's speaking of? In John 14, Jesus would say, he's building a house for you. He says, I'm going away, but don't be afraid. I go to prepare a house for you. And in my house are many rooms. He says, it's a very large house. And he goes on to share in Revelation 21 a whole lot more about what that house looks like. But before we jump into talking about houses, I want to talk about our houses for a minute. Can I get a show of hands? In the last two years, how many of us have either moved house, bought or sold a house, considered or undertaken some kind of renovations or improvements? Can I get a show of hands? Excellent. I got a video of Blair up here working on his laundry. We live in a property-obsessed country. I don't know if you're aware of this. You probably are. But we live in a property-obsessed country. Anyone who watches the news you will have seen, it seems to roll through about once a week, a story about property, either how high prices are going and how good that is, or 
how high prices are going and how bad that is, depending on which side of the media you watch. There's endless TV shows, right? There's renovation shows. There's house flipping shows. There's just the straight real estate sales shows. There's the better homes and gardens shows. There's the grand designs shows. There is an endless amount of information you can have about real estate. But when's the last time we've stopped and considered our eternal real estate? And if you have, how many of you have considered what it might look like for some renovations on your eternal real estate? To increase your eternal rewards. Because if they're rewards, inherently you've got influence over them. And if Jesus says, as he does a number of times, giving will be given back to you. If you leave things, I will give you more things. And if in this life we could take something like, you know, $30,000 and add a bathroom onto our house, what does $30,000 do when I give it to God, both in this life and to generate eternal rewards? Well, let's dive in for a minute. Let's take a look at Revelation 21. It is the clearest description of the eternal home that we have as believers And I'm going to kind of jump through and paraphrase because there's a lot of uh, language in there that's a little bit tricky to follow along with. So I've just paraphrased it. But starting at verse 10, And he showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. It shone with the glory of God, and its brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. Now pause for a second. Quick guessing game. What clear, brilliant, shiny, very precious jewel looks like a crystal? Well played. Now you can actually, there is an argument that will allow you to suggest it's not a diamond because the word used is jasper. But for a jasper to meet the other criteria used, it would have to be a very unusual variant of jasper that we have not seen. So it would have to be some kind of even rarer than a diamond jasper. So I'm going to go with Diamond, which is likely to be the less expensive version of the two outcomes. But let me summarize a few things for you from the the following verses there. The city is a 2,220 kilometer square. So one one length, 2,220 kilometers. The other length, 2,220 kilometers. That's what those metrics add up to. That makes it about two-thirds the size of Australia, to give you an idea for scale. The description of the wall is that it is 66 metres thick and made out of something like diamond. Now, for anyone trying to figure out how long is 66 metres, if I stand here and I walk that way, I will hit the toilet block. If I keep going, I will hit the admin block. If I walk to the other end of the admin block, that is roughly 66 metres. So you're looking at a diamond wall about that thick. So the gates are not just gates, it's a tunnel. And then it talks about the gates and it says that each of the 12 gates are made out of a single pearl. I want to know where's the oyster. (laughs) This is a 66 meter pearl. Sometimes I think to myself, maybe that's why there's so many planets. Maybe there's an oyster planet out there with like gargantuan oysters so that he can get the pearls 
for the city. I don't know. Maybe. The foundations of the city. I mean, this is, you've got to get the irony of this. The foundations of the city, which are most likely made out of diamond, are decorated. Anyone ever put decorations on a diamond? Women, have you ever looked at your ring? Just going to put some stickers. Every kind of precious stone and the street is made of a gold so pure it kind of looks like glass. That's the home Jesus left to prepare a place for you in. This is where the promises of God for you to have a home and prosperity under his kingship are fully answered. And it kind of sounds like to me we're going to be living in Smog's Mountain from The Hobbit. You know, where it just zooms out and out and it is just gold. And then they make that huge statue of gold bigger than the dragon. And it's, it's these wild ideas. I remember watching this movie for the first time and I was like, wow, it's a lot of gold. And then I'm reading this and I'm going, 2,220, two-thirds the size of Australia. It's the same height because it's a cube. It's outrageous. Now, to give you again some kind of context, some ideas, an average Perth-sized home, you need about 10,000 bricks. It's kind of the rough sort of number, according to my little Google, that you need. Now, they weigh 2.25 kilos each. So if you made those out of, let's go with gold. If you made those out of gold, the brickwork in an average Perth house is $3 billion in materials. If you're making that out of diamond... You're looking at $700 billion in material for one per-sized house, and he has a house two-thirds the size of Australia. And here's where it gets really interesting. If it's uh, that number of $700 billion, that's on the basis that it's lots of little, I did numbers on lots of little one-carat diamonds. But diamonds become exponentially more expensive because they're hard to find. So what that means is, a half-carat diamond is worth about $1,500. A one-carat diamond is worth about four times that amount, and a two-carat diamond is worth four times that. Right now, therefore, a four-carat diamond is around 60000 Australian dollars, and that, if you were trying to use it to build a house, will get you a grand total of one centimeter in size. The Hope Diamond in the Smithsonian is 45 carats. It's massive, extremely rare, estimated to be worth something like $250 million. It weighs in at a whopping nine grams. And it is a massive two and a half by two centimeters, roughly the size of a 10 cent coin, $250 million. If the city is made using diamonds, or perhaps it is a diamond. The wealth is wild. This is a drawing that someone's done, just kind of trying to guess at what it looks like. Uh, I like this one because it's roughly the right geographical area and it's roughly the right size. And you can see it's kind of going to monster the Mediterranean and squash maybe Italy or, you know, it, sh it should be landing here-ish somewhere. But it gives you a little bit of the idea of the size and scale of a diamond we're describing. And it occurs to me, this is already, like, I'm already lost at numbers. I just had to use, like, Australian house, and we're talking something absurdly larger than an Australian house. And we lose track of these 
kind of numbers, but I don't actually think this is the complete understanding of God's wealth because you and I understand what materials are precious, right? Like women, you are most likely to wear a precious metal on your finger. Depending on whether you're married or single, we wear precious metals on our hands. And for the men who are married, I know you know this because you got married. And when she said, buy me a big rock, you didn't look at her and go, oh, honey, I got you. I got you. My friends got a friend who's got a contact who works at the limestone quarry, and I'm going to get you a big rock. I'm going to find you the biggest rock. It's going to be so heavy, you won't even be able to move your hand. You know, see, I know that you know the right answers because you got married. But Jesus, when he is trying to figure out what to build with, either no one told him the difference between precious and not precious, or he's got so much of it, it's barely precious to him. See, in the life of King Solomon, it says that silver, sorry, gold, was so plentiful under King Solomon's reign, the wealthiest man to ever live, the wealthiest king on earth. Gold was so plentiful, silver was literally worth nothing. Silver had become worthless under King Solomon. How much more under King Jesus could gold and diamond have become simply construction materials? See, I think that if you're just decorating the outside of your city, you're not using the most precious things. I think the most precious thing is inside. Because kings never display their full wealth on the outside. They always have the treasury on the inside. So the numbers we're talking about are only what he shows us on the outside. And I mean, how much wealth must he have? How much prosperity has he given to the subjects who live inside his home and how valuable must those people be to the king that he would share his absurd abundance with them for the rest of their lives that he would welcome in the orphan that he would welcome in the slave that he would set them free and give them a home forever your city my city your home my home. And maybe it really is true that as 1 Corinthians 2.9 says, No eye has seen, no ear has heard, nor has it entered into the heart of man what God has in store for those who love him. I used to think, how outlandish. I can imagine some pretty cool things. But I start to run some numbers on what he's describing. And it's just the external decorations. His wealth is phenomenal. Leads me to think maybe Jesus was underselling it in Matthew 19. In Matthew 19, the, the rich young ruler story happens, right? The guy comes to Jesus, what do I need to do to be saved? Sell everything. Oh, I don't want to. I'm real sad. I leave you. And then the disciples turn to Jesus and they go, well, Jesus, Jesus, we did. We did the thing. We did a thing. We gave everything for you. We left our families. We left our homes. You can imagine Peter going, I had to leave a wife. I had to leave a wife. Please make extra mention of me. And Jesus turns to them and he says, everyone who is given houses, farms, families, children, whatever you've had to leave, 
for my sake, I will give you a hundredfold. And my question is, is he actually underselling it? Maybe it's more than a hundred times because I don't, I don't think I have even one hundredth of an amount to give to him to be given what he says he's going to give me. Now, if it's only a hundred times increase, let's just stick with that number because it's round and simple. And back to my original question of if I can spend $30,000 for a new bathroom, what happens if I put that 30000 in the hands of God? What happens if I take out of my resource and give it to God in this age? Does it just vanish? Do I just lose it and it's gone and it was sacrificial giving? I don't think so. In this life, that giving has real ramifications for salvation, for people to come to know Jesus, for people to see the truth about who God is. But if he's given a hundred times, hundred times 30,000 is $3 million. But then stay with me. What if you've got nothing to give? Some of you might be feeling like, Dan, 30,000 is whew, way, way wrong league. Do you remember the widow? Jesus tells the story in Luke 21, 1 through 4. And, and what happens is they're coming to the treasury and people are bringing, they're bringing big money. You know, and, and Jesus and the disciples are watching. I don't fully understand the context, but it's like a public display. You know, because so, you could see what the widow gives and you could see what the other people give. And, and I can imagine, you know, they're giving and Jesus is sitting there with his little times 100 calculator. That's worth 3,000. That's 300,000. Oh, that was 30,000. That's 3 million. He gave up a bathroom. That was whatever it was. And, and the disciples are like, Jesus, what are you doing? He's like, I'm ah, just scoring. Got to make sure I pay him back. And they're like, how much? Well, times 100. And they're like, oh my goodness, we've got to get in on this. And, and they're sitting there and they're excited about the possibility of returns. And then they see this poor widow. And she comes up and, and their heads kind of drop. And they're like, oh man, she's got two five cent coins. That's all she's got. You know, 10 cents times 100 is still kind of nothing. It's, it's $10 for anyone who's wondering on the math. And Jesus goes, times much larger number. And they're like, Jesus, what do you mean? And he goes, she gave more than everyone else. And they're like, no, 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 Jesus, we saw it. It was 10 cents. I mean, did she slide something under? Was there a little something in the robe? She kicked it underneath. And he goes, no, 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 you don't understand. They gave out of their abundance. But she gave out of sacrifice. And in the heart of God, sacrificial love creates a multiplier far greater than 100 times. Because he literally says it's more than these rich people who gave out of their abundance. And I know what a rich person can give out of his abundance. And if you multiply that by 100, still God says the 10 cents is more. And still he says my love is more. And my return will be more. So if all you have this morning is small, give it anyway. With a heart of love for Jesus because it's really going to count. So if the multipliers are that good and the multipliers are that high, should we be giving way, way more? Has Wayne been letting us down, not telling us to give more? 
joking, he hasn't. He's doing great. He's, he's staying to the biblical course. He's doing fantastic. But does anyone get to the new Jerusalem, get to that big pearly gate, get to see their allotment inside and go, oh, should have given away less. Does anyone get in there and see the glory that God has for them and see how it's multiplied by a hundred times and, and maybe more than when they give out a sacrificial love and faith and think about the reality that there's no moth here, there's no rust here, nothing's going to steal it or destroy it. It's an eternal inheritance that I will never work for again and sit there and go, oh, honey, should have bought that extra jet ski. Does anyone who stands before the glory of our God and receive his reward think for a second they should have spent more on this side? No, see, I think we'll get there and be thinking, could have given more. I could have sacrificed more. When he said, deny myself, all I thought about was the fact I was denying myself, but he had eternal glory for me. I could have sacrificed more. I could have given up more of my time. I could have fasted more. I could have spent more time talking to him in prayer and contending for his plans if I had just known, if I had just seen, oh God, that you would give us a spirit of revelation to understand what you have for us. I want to jump into really quickly what holds us back. Because if what I'm saying is true, if the biblical narrative is true, if Jesus' words are true and you know they are, why are we held back? I want to talk about fear. Fear is the really obvious one. Fear that we won't have enough. Fear that we don't have a safety net. Fear that something will go horribly wrong. And I want to tell you today, fear is faith in the wrong kingdom. Fear believes that where we're going is a dark, scary forest somewhere with a house that we don't want to go to. But the kingdom you belong to is a glorious kingdom. Where you're going is set in the heavens and no one can take it from you. There is a house in store for you. There is a God who loves you, who is going to give you everything. And God will not be mocked. A man will reap what he sows. Can we be a people who bury our lives into the ground, trusting that God will bring forth harvest both in this life and the age to come? And the other one that challenges us is this sense of, I've worked hard for this. You know, God, I worked a year to earn that. I've struggled and struggled and fought and fought and I've earned and I don't want to give this away. And I want to tell you just like the widows might, when you give sacrificially, he sees it and multiplies it further. When we are willing to have less, live without not have enough. He says he will be our portion in this life. And my goodness, if I've told you anything this morning, he will absolutely be our portion for all eternity. The struggle we can have with that is this thing called mammon. And mammon is where you turn money into your God. And what I mean by that is money is your God when you have a struggle in life and you want to look at your bank balance to figure out if you're okay. Mammon is when you start to go, if I have enough zeros, I'm happy. If there's enough in there, if I'm above whatever that magical enough amount is, I can be satisfied and I can give and I can do all these other bits and pieces. It's where you've set money up as the source of your life, as an idol of your life that you're holding on to because it's going to keep you safe. You've bought into that lie that money is somehow going to be your salvation. 
And God is calling us to say, bury it. Let it die. Let me bring forth a new life. Let me bring forth a hundredfold in this life and the next. God stirs us up to say, I've got better things than mammon for you. I am your sun and shield. And I also just want to make a note. It's okay to buy jet skis. just feel like I need to put that out there. It's okay to enjoy things in this life. There's no problem with that. You know, yeah, there's there's lots of biblical basis I can give you for it's okay to enjoy nice meals and have nice things and, and do all of those kind of things, but don't do it at the expense of the eternal reward that's there to be had. And don't fix your eyes only on the house in this life, thinking if you could just renovate the bathroom and if you could just redo this bit and if you can just add on another room and if you could just do this and that, you'd be happy because you won't. But if we can fix our eyes on the home we're building forever, if we can fix our eyes every time we give, every time we tithe, every time we sacrifice, remember the reward. Remember what's coming your way because it's not in vain. It's not a fruitless activity. It's not an idle activity. It's not an activity that's going to be forgotten about. It's going to be rewarded richly in that day. See, because when God talks about money and the way we use money, it has everything to do with money and very little to do with money. It's really about faith. Where's your faith? Is it in this house? Or the house to come. So when you take from the money you've earned this week or this month and you give a chunk of it away, you're engaging in an act of faith. It's faith that says God is my provider today and he will give me an incredible reward in that day as well. I don't need to withhold. I don't need to squirrel it away and hoard up for myself because I've got a good father. I've got a good father who lets me live with open hands. I've got a good father who lets me live with an open heart. He's my source. So today I want to ask, which house are you focused on? The house you're going to build for a few decades or the house you're going to build for eternity? The house Jesus is going to give you for all eternity. As Wayne's been teaching about finances, have you been excited because you're building for eternity or struggling with the idea of giving up and missing out in your current house struggling with the questions of what will the future look like if I don't fully take care of me but I want to tell you this morning you're not going to regret a single time you choose faith over fear I want to tell you that God sees far more ahead of you than you see for yourself that no matter what the future holds, no matter what the economic situation, no matter how the pandemic plays out, God is taking you to an eternal home and no act of faith will ever go unseen. No act of faith will ever go unrewarded. Every seed will come to harvest in the will of God. So let me pray for us. God, I ask that you would give us wisdom and revelation. Lord, that you would help us to see things your way. 
that you would give us a wise spirit to see the value scale to see that the little bit we give today really matters to you to see how much it moves your heart when we give and it's a struggle see that truly this life is just a vapor it's just a moment in time where we have to love you and no act of love goes unseen no act of faith goes unseen you see the five cents you see the five dollars you see the five thousand the five hundred thousand you see it all God, help us to let go and to trust you.